0: Welcome to season six of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog at a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature the wonderfully talented
1: sports radio talk show host here in Chicago, Lawrence Holmes. Going to HF, it blew my mind all the things that were available. The reason that that place churns out broadcasters and, and people who work in media is because the environment is conducive to learning and it's super competitive. And I, I feel that I got a great education on learning how to work in this industry and was kind of ready to hit the ground running when I was done, before I was done with high school. From an intern to now one
0: of the prominent voices on Chicago sports radio, Lawrence Holmes has climbed the ladder and he's still climbing. Besides hosting a midday show on WSCR radio, he recently became a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. He also has a popular podcast entitled The House of L, which has turned into a network of podcasts. He teaches a class at DePaul, has a master's degree from Alabama, and oh, he loves comic books. So with that as a backdrop, Lawrence Holmes, tell me a story I don't know.
1: Georgie, I want to take you back to the Bears being in the Super Bowl 15 years ago. We were down in Miami, and at the time, at the score, Zach Zaidman and I were both covering the Bears, which was great. He was a great teammate to work with on that beat. When it got time for the Bears to go to the Super Bowl, we figured out that we had a coverage situation here. How were we going to go about covering the Super Bowl? Well, it was easy. Since Zach was on the sidelines for the Bears, he got the Bears, I got the Colts, so I spent – most of my time down there in Fort Lauderdale covering Tony Dungy and and the Colts and it was a lot of fun and he spent the whole week telling me how they weren't going to kick to Devin Hester that was the the thing that they were certain about they weren't going to kick to Devin Hester and the Colts have had a hard time all season covering kicks it's Hester trying to work it back to the middle gets past the first wave and here he goes it's Hester inside the 30 hester's gonna take it all the way for a touchdown and no flag 92 yards the whole week was really incredible the experience itself was incredible but for me this was the most incredible part the friday before the super bowl they talk with the halftime shows performing artist, and that year it was prince Mm. So on the dry erase board where they were giving you the schedule of what was going to happen that day, it was 1 o'clock, Prince press conference. Now, because I'm a huge fan of Prince, I know that that getting Prince to do what you want him to do is not something that was ever going to be easy. I had my credential. I had to be in that room to see the, the Prince press conference. We go in there, there's probably 200 media members or so inside there. And oh, by the way, they had put out signs and reminders that while Prince was there, the bathrooms were off limit (laughs) in the convention center that no one else could go and use the bathroom except for Prince and his team. I'm sitting in the back of the room watching how all of this stuff is going to be set up. And I can't wait because Prince is my number one artist. Like, it's Prince and Stevie Wonder for me, and I can't wait to see how this is going to play out. He is on stage, which right there I'm kind of freaking out. Mm. And he says in his very Prince way, contrary to popular belief, I will answer your questions. (laughs) Bill Plaschke was the person who asked the initial question. He starts his question, Prince interrupts him by playing. His whole band is now on stage he plays johnny b good he plays for 15 minutes he does a medley george 15 minutes of prince in concert for a room of 200 people and then he finishes his set he says see y'all at the super bowl and walks off the stage i was just pure joy at that moment pure joy to see my favorite artist that close up, that intimately, and then I was lucky enough to see him again do the halftime show at the Super Bowl. I got rewarded with two Prince concerts, George. Two!
0: That sounds like so much of a blast, Lawrence. And of course, just a few moments ago, we heard uh, the soundbite of Devin Hester taking back the opening kickoff of the Super Bowl for a touchdown. That was his rookie year. And of course, I maintained all along he should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. He wasn't but I think it's safe to say he's going to
1: get in. I agree with you to me. If you're talking about the best that have ever done it, if the hall of fame is supposed to be a collection of the, the best players that have played the game, then how can you have a hall of fame without the best kick returner of all time? And it's not close. Like you can throw Brian Westbrook at me or Deion Sanders at me. If you want Dante Hall, whomever it's not close on, on who the best was. And being able to watch all of that career play out, it's amazing. It's amazing that the shy kid that I saw enter that locker room in 2006 and the, the grown man you know, that, that is advocating for himself to be in the Hall of Fame now, I, I, I love it. I really, really love it. But, yeah, there can't be your Hall of Fame doesn't have a lot of validity to it if Devin Hester doesn't find his way in there.
0: So please explain to me why so many graduates of Homeward Flossmoor High School, like yourself, have made it in the media industry. Now we're talking not just about yourself, but a significant amount of others, including Chuck Garfine, Scott Merkin, Paul Sullivan, Jason
1: Benetti, I'm sure I'm missing a few. Amanda Kashubi, the the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Tyra Martin, who's one of the producers over at Channel 9. Uh, so we're we're legion. The the HF mafia, as we like to call ourselves, is is legion, and it has to do with the program that they put forth. Like when I got this, it was it was really a mind blowing experience because you know, I grew up first fourteen years of my life were in Roseland, and going to HF, it blew my mind all the things that were available to you there. And one of those things was working at. A radio station and then eventually a television station, which is where I ended up meeting Ben Bradley, who's been one of my best friends since like we've known each other for God, like now it's 30 years that we've known each other and they treat it very professionally. I had my FCC license to operate a board when I was 16 and that's a rite of passage. At HF, they train you for that and they get you ready for that. And you're not allowed to have it until you're 16. Those types of things, they're able to, with a lot of funding, a lot of hard work, sweat equity by, by people like Megan Tipton and Bob Comstock, it put all of us in a really good spot. We had learned a lot of the terminology before we went to college. You know, I, I was confident in running a board by the time I was 18 years old. And, and then that ended up being a really good thing because my first internship was when I was 19 and I was working at WMAQ for Luke Kanellis and Jeff Joniak as, as their intern. So I feel that I got a great education on learning how to work in this industry and was kind of ready to hit the ground running. When i was done before i was done with high school
0: did you know then this is what you wanted to pursue in a life or was it
1: earlier no i i didn't know then and it it took me probably towards the end of college to to make the decision when the whole reason that i got into radio is when i got to hf you know i i played for jackie robinson west so like we won a state title i thought for sure I was going to end up playing baseball in the 96 Olympics. Like, that's what I, I, that was kind of my dream that I was going to be a a big time baseball star. And I played all sports, you know, I played everything. And freshman year, I tore up my ankle playing basketball, like really badly so bad that they had to insert a screw in my right leg, which I still have uh, in my right ankle. And it, I was in, I was, what they call serial casting. Like it was so bad. They had to kind of move the foot back to normal through four or five months of casting. And it put a damper on what I thought I was going to be I man. George. I thought I was going to show up at HF and I was going to be the man. You know, I, <laughs> I thought for sure that that's what, what the plan was for me. Eventually I got healthy and I was able to play and it ended up turning out great. And I ended up getting a couple of, of pro tryouts later, Um, Once I finished college, but the, the reason I ended up working in radio and TV at the high school was because my mother saw that it bothered me that I wasn't able to immediately kind of live out my sports dreams. And she had done all the research on HF and everything they had to offer. And she said they have broadcasting like why don't since you love sports, you could just talk about sports. So in
0: other words, she opened the path for you.
1: Yeah, she 100% did, and it it completely changed my life because I kind of thought that it was going to go one way, and then it ends up going in a different way, and it was – I'm so grateful to my parents for – I think I would have found success because of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, if we stayed in the city and I end up at Brother Rice or Marist or any – or anywhere, Morgan Park, like – I think I would have found success, but they went out of their way to really give me a shot at opening the world up to all the different things that I could do. And I still have a lot of affection for HF because of that. It took a lot of getting used to. It was very different from what I knew. And and it, it laid a foundation for me to figure that out. But I didn't realize it. I kind of lived the dream out, like the summer of graduation at DePaul, I lived the dream out of, I got invited to one of those local tryouts, and I was excited about it because I I wanted to see if I was any good. And I got three tryouts. I got a tryout with the Marlins, I got a tryout with the Expos, and I got a tryout with Atlanta. No, with Montreal, with Montreal. I said the Expos. You did. With Atlanta. So, so I got trials with those three teams and I went as far as I could go. Like I made it through, like, I I joke about this story now because I, I feel so slow and old, but at the time (laughs) they, what they did the first thing they have you do George. So it's me and probably 20 other guys that are there. The first thing that they do is they have you run a 60 and if you can't crack under eight in the 60, they just send you home. Like that's and I was like, oh okay. Because I spend most of my time playing baseball catching. So I said, oh well I'm I'm gonna be going home really quickly here. And I actually was I made it. I think it was a 7.2 I ran the 60 in back then. Then they they have you do fielding and Everyone lines up at shortstop. Like, you take your grounders at shortstop. They want to see if you have close to a major league arm. And I made it through that. Then we got to the hitting part, George. Well, well, <laughs> that's, that's when I went home because I, <laughs> I, I was always the type of hitter that could get contact. I could get the bat on the ball. But I never was going to hit for power, especially in a wood bat league. Like, if you gave me an aluminum bat, I could do Okay. But a wood bat when guys are, are throwing, you know, high 80s, low 90s, no way. So that ended my dream of playing it. And once that ended, I was able to open my mind up to a couple other things. I had thought about going to law school, and and going to the Navy, becoming a judge advocate general. Uh, I I I really was interested in that, but I had had such a good time working in broadcasting. At the time that all of this is going on, I'm interning at Channel 9. So this is the summer of 1997. I'm working for Dan Rohn and Rich King and Krista Ruck and Harry Gold. and A
0: lot uh, of good people, I might add. And Dan Rohn has been a guest on this podcast and, of course, is now retired.
1: Yeah, he's he's a, a beautiful guy. And him and Rich treated me so great. And Krista Ruck is, is still w- like one of my tent poles. Oh, yeah, like, she's great. You know, if, if I'm having an issue and I want to ask someone advice, like she's top of the list of people that I go to for for that type of advice. So I had this choice of, like, what was next? Like, what, what do you want to do next? They promoted me to field producer that summer. And that was kind of the moment where I said, man, this is what I want to do because I'm out here. I'm covering Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. You know, I'm 22 years old. In the middle of the, I was 21, I wasn't even 22. I, in the middle of the, the Bulls dynasty, I got to cover the last two years of that dynasty. Johnny Pippen looking, looking for Michael Jordan. Checks the clock, five on the 24. Here's Jordan, did not have the shot. That, that made my mind up, and, and I, I applied for a job at the score. They were looking for a part-time producer. I was trying to make a living. You know how it is in our business. You kind of have to cobble some stuff together for a while, mm. and once I got there, I was like, this is it. Like, this is where I feel, and the crazy part is I walked in the door at the score on May 8th of 1998, and I have not left.
0: Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly one million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. So, when you first started at the score, you were a part time producer, and then you became a full time producer for The Grobber, the late Les Grobstein.
1: What was it like
0: working with him?
1: Yeah, so it was like a big deal. Like, you know, it was like, oh, I get benefits now, and, and I can pay my half of the rent. My, my, my roommate, Matt Lazzarato, doesn't have to carry me uh, for a couple more months. I really loved working with Les. Let's go to the north side and talk with Edwin. Hey, Edwin, you're on the score. Hey, Lawrence, how are you? I'm good. Hang on a second. Uh, Get out of here, Les. Get out. It's my time. I got this. You get out of here. You get out of here. here. I'm staying on the air. Kiss my ass. You get out of this studio now. You want to do it till 5? No, but I'll do it for a few more minutes. I'll do it for a few more minutes, though, let you get settled. Get out of here, Grobsty. Up until that point, I don't know what his his life and career had been like with producers, but it was pretty clear to me that people hadn't taken the time to actually produce his show. Like, didn't try and get and climb inside of his mind and find out the things that he wanted to do sonically. And I was interested in that. I told him he, I, I wanted to clean up a lot of the sound that he had on his show, George, because it was so haphazardly done by him. You know, <laughs> you, you know, less like he was oh, yeah. always like going a million miles an hour. And I'm like, there's a better way to do this. Right. So let me do this for you. And once he saw that I wanted to be an active participant on his show, he gave me carte blanche. He let me, he let me talk on his show. And that was a huge deal to me. Like, this is Les Grobstein, man. Like, he was he was a rock star in the radio world and if you were someone that was coming up in radio if you were listening to late night radio back in the 90s you were listening to les or you were listening to art bell and i was listening to les and now i'm sitting there in front of him like working on his show i learned a lot because Back in those days, it would be me and Les. Like, we were the only two people at the radio station for, for hours upon end. And it, it gave me a real glimpse of how how you, you better have your stuff together and be prepared if you're going to do a solo show. And, and Les was all over the place sometimes, but I, I never had to worry about him running out of content. And and working with Les taught me that. And it was also a lot of fun because he was nuts. Like he was <laughs> completely off the wall. And and I, I I joked about this on my podcast after he passed. Some of my favorite stuff throughout my career was being in the press box with you guys, with you and Schuster and him and the (laughs) level of ball busting that would go on most uh, of the ball busting was done
0: to less you know that don't you
1: yes and it was kind of like rat-a-tat-tat like (laughs) you and Schuster kind of going back and forth and I, I I look upon that time in my career so fondly because it brought joy to covering what were sometimes joyless football games
0: well that's that's what it was we tried to have a little fun in a press box during games and And uh, even when uh, the late Red Motlow was around and Red got a kick out of that because we were all sitting together.
1: I was brought up in a time at the score where, again, the environment producer-wise was competitive. I'm I'm in there with the – it's killers. Like, you know, Matt Spiegel is one of the best sound guys ever do it. Matt Fishman. Dan Zampillo and I were hired on the same day. Jonathan Hood is – You know, one of the most naturally gifted, talented producers that we had. And these were the models that that I was following, like, okay, if I'm going to get an opportunity to produce full time or move up in day parts, I better be as good at booking guests as Jesse Rogers is. Or I better be as good at putting sound together as Matt Spiegel is or i better be as as good on the mic as jonathan hood is as a producer that leads you to a place where you you better get your shit together like you better mm-hmm. you better be ready and you better have ideas as a producer it's it, it's it's a boiler room it was definitely a boiler room back then but i think that it worked out really well for everyone involved to to try and be better and, and push yourself to try and get all of the goods you could to, to figure out, you know, what your next path is. And then two years after I start, guess who else starts producing? Golf. Like, think about that. Like, like the amount of talent that was just sitting behind the board at the score. You're an NFL
0: guy, and obviously this town is a Bears town. I, I, I wonder – do you ever get tired about talking about the Bears?
1: When the Bears are miserable. <laughs> Which is often as we know. It, it happens a lot, right? Like yes, it, it does. It, when they're miserable, you have to get really creative in how you're going to talk about them. I always talk about the idea of the driver like in the bag, like if you're a golfer. I am reluctant now as a a 46 year old to pull the driver out of the bag as much as I used to when I was younger, I always joke, 27 year old Lawrence hates 46 year old Lawrence, 27 year old Lawrence thinks, why aren't you screaming at the top of your lungs? And why aren't you calling people out and all this stuff? And now I feel that I can do that in a, in a multitude of ways. It doesn't have to be me completely blasting Bears management. Now it happens, and and I went viral last year when I blasted them bringing back Ryan Pace. They wanted to give him another swing at it. And my question then, and my question now is why? What is it that he's done in his career as general manager of the Bears that says to you he deserves another opportunity to pick the future of your franchise? They should have fired him today. It is maddening that that guy won't answer a question squarely when he has posed real questions about what his decision-making process is like. He won't give you a square answer. I remember that. But... Now I can take more nuanced approaches to it. More people care, more people listen, more people read, more people watch when the Bears are good. Yes, when there's a train wreck of a press conference that the Bears have, yes, initially, there are going to be people that tune in to hear our reactions to it. And then a couple days later, they're going to be tired of it. And I think the Bears, as, as a... An organization, they sometimes need to understand that it's it's not anger, it's it's ambivalence that they should be afraid of. And that's where we had gotten in a couple of these seasons before they they made wholesale changes. We're getting to the place of I don't care about that. And those are not the types of shows that I want to do. I want to do shows where we can celebrate great players and we can tell some of the individual stories of those players. And that's, that's something that I learned on the beat. You know, this, like you've been in locker rooms for forever. There's so many great stories and often because of the, the way that this industry works, like we're kind of like, well, here's what happened in this game. And, and, and now we're on to the next game when there are tons of stories to be told.
0: Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We resume with Lawrence Holmes on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. One of the stories that I'd like you to talk about is the responsibility of weekly guests. And one of those weekly guests was Joe Madden, who we all know, the former manager of the Cubs, which had to be a great experience because, as we all know, Joe loves to talk. He's a very amiable human being. Tell me about the experience of doing that on that weekly basis and especially
1: laying the groundwork of trust, which really isn't that easy. When I got promoted and it was known that I was now going to do this midday show, someone at the Cubs said to me, this is before I even knew, hey, um, I think you're going to be doing the Joe Madden show. And I was like, wow. Like, and I was in Mesa at the time. Uh, it, like the story had gotten out that I was being promoted and I was very much looking forward to it. With a guest like that, I went to go see Joe. And I wanted, I I had been in press conferences with Joe, but you know how it is. Like, I'm just a face. Like, I'm not a person. So I wanted to introduce myself to Joe. He invited me into his office. He couldn't have been, he couldn't have been more into doing the show and wanting to make me feel comfortable. And it was immediate. Like, the comfort was immediate. And I, I got to give a lot of credit to Tony Gill, who was the producer at the time, who said, I want you to do this differently. And, and I said, what do you mean? So we're going to do a segment at the end of our segment with Joe where we're going to ask him questions that don't have to do with baseball. Now, you can't do that with everybody. Like, not everybody is willing to, to play with you like that, but Joe was. And the first thing that we did with him, Tony had been going off about oatmeal raisin cookies and how they were better than chocolate chip cookies. And, and I, I, I am completely against that theory. We took it to Joe. Like Tony said, let's ask Joe. And Joe eviscerated Tony on the air about his oatmeal raisin cookie take and was talking about how great chocolate chip cookies are. And I know that that's because there was a level of comfort that he had, like he knew me and there, there was some trust there. George, I, I say this with no ego or as little ego as I can. There was nothing that's been more valuable to me as a talk show host and in the next portion of my career than the trust that Joe Madden showed me. I've been working with this guy all year, and I, tell, I want
0: to tell you what a pleasure it is to work with Lawrence on a, on a weekly basis. It really Yay! is. Yeah, it's true. Um, uh, he, he, he gets it. He gets it. He's very bright man, and we've had a, a wonderful interaction all year. Thank you, man. appreciate
1: it. No, I appreciate that. Thank you, because when the beat reporters told me that you said that about me, I was like, they're all lying, Um <laughs> and they're trying to make me look bad. Oh, but... the writers would never lie. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> we always had a good time, and I feel that it elevated me in a way. People saw me differently than they had before, because it was... It was, hey, can this guy do the thing that he was doing at night? Can he do it in two hours instead of four hours like what I had? Was I going to be able to do some of these long-form interviews that I love doing in that time slot? And because Joe was so giving, it worked. And so at the end of the segment, I gifted him. I went record shopping, George. I went to a record shop in Avondale. And probably spent 2 hours in there picking different stuff. And I knew that Joe loved the Rolling Stones, so I found some kind of deep cut Rolling Stones stuff. I wanted to share some stuff that I like with him. Big Stevie Wonder fan, so I got him some Stevie, like was trying to figure out like the connection with us. He his reaction when I gave it to him was incredible. And he references that a lot when I see him. He's like, "Man, it was incredibly thoughtful gift but part of the reason that i did it was because he was so good to me and, and and so good to the score that you couldn't help love him
0: not only that but i think we all know what joe really is he's a hippie okay yep. he's a hippie living in this time and and i love him about that you know along the way in your career you've worked television Uh, including, I would think, a way too short appearance as the host of the Bears' post-game show on NBC Sports Chicago. There was 120 Sports, which is now called Stadium. You did a stint on CBS Radio, which you walked away from because it was a really early time slot. So you've gotten jobs, and there are jobs you didn't get. And there was one in particular that would have been a life changer. Tell me a story. I don't know about that.
1: Okay. So... I've never talked about this publicly, by the way, George. So kudos to you for convincing me to talk about it. When the White Sox were looking to change their radio booth, you know, Ed Farmer passed away. I loved Ed. Ed and DJ, really good to me as well. Ed would, Ed would get mad. You probably had this experience with Ed too. Ed would see you at the game and be like, why didn't you come to the booth? And my, my answer is always, like, I don't want to bother you. He's like, it's not a bother. And, you know, Ed knew everyone. Like, Ed was, was the mayor. You know, like, he, he'd bring you in there. You, you, you'd look up, and you're like, wait a minute. Like, why is this person here?
0: Like Not only that, but Ed would sometimes not talk baseball because he was pretty bright guy and worldly. He would talk about other stuff, which I really appreciated. you walk in there, and he'd look at you, and he'd
1: start talking about things that had nothing to do with baseball. And and I love being around Ed because I grew up going to Catholic school. When, when we lived in Roseland, I went to a small Catholic school called Saint Thaddeus. And once Ed found out I was Catholic, oh my goodness. Oh he, he was like, Oh, so 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 who was your pastor? So we would talk about we we talk about mass and I would tell him how I was an altar boy and I made it all the way up to you know masters of ceremony, like the highest that an altar boy can go. All this stuff, we would talk about Southside Parishes and all this great stuff, and I, and I miss him tremendously. So when there was a chance to go work with DJ, who's one of my favorite people, I was floored that I even got asked to consider it. And the White Sox said, we know that you do play-by-play. I, I did some play-by-play. Uh, I've done the state championship in football, I've done DePaul basketball, and when the score had the White Sox, I used to do White Sox interactive with DJ. And I was really, like, geeked about it. Like, honestly, like, I was like, I can't believe that I got that phone call. Wow, I might have a shot at this. Like, I might have a chance to do play-by-play for my favorite team. I get the phone call a couple days before of, listen, we really like you. And I know there were other people that were in consideration that they liked as well. But something phenomenal has happened. And I'm like, what? Like, what's happened? And then I was told, Link Casper is interested in the job. And I was, like, sitting there going, that doesn't. Lynn's got a job and it's on the other side of town. And the fact that he was interested and I I told this person who called and told me that I said, hire Lynn Casper. Like I really want the job and I don't want to bullshit you and act like I don't want the job. But if the choice is me at this point in my career or Lynn Casper to do play by play, hire Lynn Casper.
0: Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog Drag through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, And socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast, at viennabeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at viennabeef.com. Now, let me tell you a story about Lawrence and me you don't know. Many years ago, I had an idea about doing something like this, albeit, I think, before the advent of podcasts, but like like many ideas, it took a seat on the back burner. Then early in your airing of The House of L, you invited me to be a guest. I think I was episode 30, and I think you're way past 350 now or something. And I thought this was going to be, you know, we're going to talk the current sports landscape. So I'm just brushing up and whatever little did I realize this interview was all about me.
1: I love to ask the, the OGs, the original gangsters, what it was like (laughs) to cover Jordan. (laughs) Fabulous.
0: Fabulous. What a lucky time in life to have the greatest basketball player in history and an entertaining player. So I wasn't exactly prepared Lawrence, you know, to talk my head off, which I did. And I had a blast. So some three years later, uh, I'm let go at WBBM. This is in July of 2020. And the back burner became the front burner. And even my subconscious, whatever there is of it, I really think that interview inspired me to do this. So if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I hope you are sincerely
1: flattered. Man, like that's mind blowing. I, I i love that i love that, that that was a jumping off point for you to be like hey let me find some of the best storytellers in the game and, and bring them on when i when i first started house of l i would have been happy if 500 people listened to episode one which was jason benetti i would have been happy if if, if i tried this experiment and it would have worked well that first episode with Jason Benetti has now been listened to over 7,000 times. And that's and – I, I, I joke about this. Like, it was – my first three episodes was Murderer's Row. It was Jason Benetti. It was Jason Goff right after he was let go from the score. Two-parter. And then Cheryl Scott. Like, the first three episodes of my podcast did s- such numbers that it made people, like, take notice – of it and since then like obviously like anything it it levels off but now we're over a million and a half downloads for house of l to think that the brainchild of that like you're saying like you took some inspiration from what i was doing this was a, a brainchild of mine that happened in grad school this was a class project george that my professors down in Alabama said, it basically came down to this. Me, I was in an entrepreneurial journalism class at Bama. We were all, as a project, supposed to create a media company. And I said, well, I've been thinking about doing a podcast, and I had incredible support from the people down at Bama to say, well, then do that. And, and my real-world experience of building the podcast actually turned into my project in the class. And the fact that there was that level of flexibility, people think that I only care about Bama football, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. My connection with the University of Alabama, even with taking classes in Chicago, is really about what those people did for me that they opened up my mind creatively and allowed me to explore stuff. And now I, I have a podcast that is birthed other podcasts, both figuratively and, and, and literally on the uh, on House of L. There are three other podcasts that live inside of it. Like to think of your, your brainchild being given life And for you to be like, man, I see what Lawrence is doing. I can do that. I'm going to do it my way, but I can do what he's doing. It's the best compliment I can ever get.
0: You got a degree at DePaul. You also got a degree, a master's degree at Alabama in journalism. And now you teach at DePaul as well. Why do I get the feeling there's a lot more to Lawrence Holmes
1: than just sports radio? Well, my parents are both teachers my dad's a a college professor retired college professor there's also a fun story there like he used to work he used to work for kanye west's mom (laughs) at, at chicago state and teaching has been kind of the family business like his mom was a teacher you know my mom is a teacher and they never when i was thinking about teaching out of college they, they thought it wasn't the best idea, which is strange from two people whose combined years working in CPS is 72 years. What I love about the experience at DePaul is going back there and being able to teach what I love at the, at the place that I love. Like, I love DePaul because DePaul was able to open up doors for me. It's very similar to how I feel about Bama. It's very similar how I feel about HF. I I'm trying to look at all of the great things and opportunities that these places have allowed, and how I've been able to learn. I I love teaching students about this industry, like sharing with them as much as I can about this industry to arm them with information so that they can go and. And have successful careers
0: now can we talk about something that's really not up my alley but it is up your alley comic sure. books yeah what's the attraction when
1: did it start and one would assume it's still an attraction it's funny because one of the one of the episodes that i was going to mention i did an episode with a a phd named cord scott and he writes about the propaganda of comic books going all the way back like, he's a, a military expert, but he talks about the the use of comic books as propaganda. If you look at comic books in the, the 40s, it's, it's Captain America fighting Hitler. It's Superman being this American, like, paragon of virtue. The storytelling aspect of comic books hit me when I was probably 11 or so. We would go to Evergreen Plaza over on 95th and Western. And you remember the old bookstore Crocs and Britannos? Of course I do. That's my parents were big and my dad has walls and walls of books in their house. And we would, we would go there. And I was always drawn to the art. You see the artwork and, then I got the stories. Like, I, Captain America was, like, the first comic book that I bought. And I was like, wow, this is amazing, like, amazing storytelling devices. And now I got to wait. I got to wait a whole month before I find out how this story continues. And that was me. Like, as a kid, it was me laying on the floor, reading comic books, listening to Stephen Gary. Like, that was my afternoons. When I wasn't playing sports, that's what I was doing. And now, what is fascinating to me, George, is I'm part of a generation of comic book geeks that had always thought, man, what if our favorite heroes could be put on a big screen? And now the technology is there to be able to pull it off. And what we've seen with Marvel over the last decade is a realization of all of those young men and women who were sitting there reading these stories and going, there's no way that it's ever going to match what's in my mind. And throughout this last decade, we got that. We were like, what? We're blown away by the ability, the technology, the movie making, the storytelling that's gone on to give us that, to, to give us that joy as comic book fans. And I I don't read as much as I used to. I, I used to have a pretty a pretty gnarly collection of of comic books. I've donated most of those. But I have my favorites that I keep. I have ones that I have completely sealed up so that they can survive anything i have my favorite cover art all of that stuff and i'm actually working on a comic book now um i i I can't tell you much more than that but over the next year i am going to have my name on the front of a comic book. And I can't wait to share it with everybody. <laughs> this should be very interesting. I asked this final
0: question to all my guests, though we may have gotten an answer here or there. If not for the radio business, the media
1: business, what would you have been? I think about the sliding doors concept of this all the time. I imagine I'm probably teaching and coaching high school football. I That's that's probably it. I spent some time doing that when I first started out at the score. I I, co- I, I was an offensive coordinator for Washington High School over on the southeast side, Phil Korich. And I imagine that I'm probably teaching history and coaching football. And if not that, then maybe I pursued coaching and I'm working – I'm one of the coaches that can't get hired in the NFL. Uh, Maybe I'm doing that right now and no one wants to give me a job, but it's probably in a classroom somewhere and then working on football and baseball. Let me end this
0: Lawrence by telling you what a real joy it is to know you from day one when you walked into the score. Your success is no surprise to me. You are the genuine article, which is why I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Lawrence Holmes, for telling me a story I don't know.
1: Thank you, George. This was a delight.
0: My thanks to CBS Sports, the NFL Network, NBC Sports, WSCR The Score, and the House of L podcast for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Rees for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.
2: Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in
1: our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.